Hello, and welcome to Thrive, a podcast that gives you strategies and inspiration to help you live your best life. Learn from us, two cancer survivors, as we show you how we don't just survive, but thrive. Hi, I'm Dara Kurtz, creator of CrazyPerfectLife.com, a place to go to help you find meaning each day, and author of the book, Crush Cancer, the book I needed when I heard those terrifying words, you have cancer, available on Amazon. Hi, I'm Garth Callahan. I am a seven-ton cancer thriver. But more importantly, I am also the original napkin notes dad. I've been writing notes to my daughter, Emma, and sticking them into her lunch ever since kindergarten. Today, I'm really excited about introducing you to Sonia Negle. She is the director of Metaviver. And many of you know that it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but we wanted to take a moment to talk about metastatic breast cancer. Metastatic breast cancer, it is something where around 113 women or people die every day of metastatic breast cancer, but less than really two to 5% of research dollars are even spent trying to find a cure for metastatic breast cancer. And this is how women, people die of breast cancer. It's when it's metastatic. So we are really blessed to talk with Sonia today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So Sonia, tell us a little bit about your organization and what it does. Uh, Metaviver Research and Support was founded in 2009 by four metastatic breast cancer patients. We're a nonprofit charitable organization, and our mission, our primary mission is to fund stage four metastatic breast cancer research to one day transition the terminal disease to a chronic yet manageable disease with a good quality of life. How many people in the United States do you think are living with metastatic breast cancer? It's about 265,000, and that's an estimate. When I say about an estimate, it's not because we're unsure on our end. There's just the statistics are really lacking for metastatic breast cancer, primarily because it's not counted as part of the national SEER database. And so we have a very difficult time with statistics, but we do often reach out to our mathematical and statistical scientists to help us reevaluate what those estimates are for men and women living with metastatic breast cancer. I feel like, you know, everyone knows that the month of October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. You know, we all see the pink and I personally really don't even really like this month. And I don't know. I think the reason that I don't like it is because breast cancer isn't fun. And I feel like the month of October is just, you see a lot of, and there are definitely, it's educating people, absolutely. But it also sort of presents breast cancer in a way that doesn't show the other side. And that's why we really wanted to have you on the podcast. What do you think of the month of October and where where are your thoughts? Well, I think that from the metastatic breast cancer community, it almost leaves out that group of people that we really should be putting the major focus on, right? Because if you have an early stage breast cancer, 
there are many options for you for treatment, surgical intervention, adjuvant treatments that will allow you to be cured of that early stage breast cancer. However, those that are early stage can and do become metastatic. About 30% of those folks can and do become metastatic even decades after their original diagnosis. And honestly, if we solve it stage four, if we solve metastatic breast cancer, early stage breast cancer patients don't really have to have that lingering worry that maybe one day they'll become metastatic. So when people talk about our organizations talk about curing cancer, really putting the money toward that true cure or toward managing the disease so that there is significant life extension for those people living with metastatic cancers. Really, in my opinion, the uh, logical thing to do where this is concerned. So in October, there's a lot of information about getting your mammograms, educating people to do self-exams, which all of those things are very important. They're super important for a diagnosis, right? But what about the people who aren't at the recommended age for mammograms? They still are diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. What if you're 17 or 18 or you're a male? What is the average age of metastatic breast cancer thriver? We really don't have a lot of data where that's concerned. We see more younger women diagnosed and more younger women over the past four years that have been diagnosed in the 18 to 25 year old range. Yeah. I wanted to, I I thought you were going to say that. And I really want to highlight that because I feel like in the space that I'm in, I've met a lot of women who are younger and who are getting this diagnosis. And often I, I, I feel like a lot of times it's it's maybe even when they're pregnant or right after they have a baby. Exactly. And why, why, why does that happen? Theoretically, it is the hormones in your body that they increase and then decrease rapidly over time. Anecdotally, because again, there's not a lot of data and statistics about metastatic breast cancer, but for us, we get to talk to a lot of patients. And what we find is that those people who are younger and diagnosed, it's particularly aggressive Mm -hmm. and uh, more aggressive than if you're older and diagnosed. So the average lifespan of And it's a range because there's different subtypes of metastatic breast cancer, but it's 24 to 36 months, right? We do have outliers and we do have new drugs that are coming to market that increase life, our life extension that give our patients longer lives, but it's 7.9 nine months has been the longest so far, which is significant in the life of a patient whose average lifespan is 36 months, right? Especially if they're a new mom and they have a new baby. And I don't know if a lot of our listeners realize that this, this is happening and it's, it's not uncommon anymore. It's not. And what's most concerning is that the rapid change in health. So someone can be doing very well and 
possibly have stable, their cancer stable. And then very rapidly that can change. And in days um, we might lose that person. And that is just not acceptable. How do you think it happened that all the research dollars and the focus, it started maybe down the path of early diagnosis instead of going to finding a cure? How how do you think that happened? Because it feels like it happened and now we're kind of in this space where only 7.4, really less than 5% of dollars donated to breast cancer is going to research stage four metastatic patients. It actually in the U.S. it's you know it changes year by year, okay. but it's usually two to five percent, two percent. When you think about that, it's that's not very much money. I think, and this is my personal opinion, but I think that it's when something's easier to solve, right? That's usually where everybody wants the money, or if there's a larger group. So people who are diagnosed with breast cancer, that's a you know, pretty huge group of people, right? And if you can treat that and do stopgap measures to where those people are living longer, are where they're cured, are cured for a certain period of time, that might be where the money is best spent, or that might be the theory that the money is best spent in that area. For me, I think it's more important that we solve the bigger issue so that the early stage people don't have to worry are those i diagnosed it at an early stage and then also those living with metastatic breast cancer don't have to have that impending sense of doom that there is um, treatments that will extend their lives and we don't know that there will ever be a cure for metastatic breast cancer right but we do know uh, and we are seeing advances in research where there is longer life extension and not just longer life extension, but a better quality of life. So maybe targeted therapies that just target the cancer and leave the surrounding tissue healthy, less toxicity with some of the treatments so that patients are not homebound while they're going through treatment. Because remember, if you're early stage, you have so many treatments and then you're done, or you may just have surgical intervention. But with metastatic breast cancer, you will be on treatment for the rest of your life. That's why your organization is so important. 100% of every dollar donated to Metaviver goes to research. 100%. And we're going to have that link in the show notes. If you're listening to this podcast and you feel called to make a donation, know that 100% of your dollars is going to save lives. And a lot of organizations can't say that. We are so fortunate and we're a patient driven organization. So our leadership, our patients, and they feel like they're on the clock that yeah. we are we yeah. need to solve this issue as soon as possible and we also need to make sure that we're doing those things that are patient centric 
while we're in the process of doing that. Metaviver is the only organization that specifically focuses on stage four metastatic breast cancer research. And as you mentioned, 100% goes to research. It's the only peer-reviewed program. So we know that we're getting the absolute best science, best research every year. And we also have patient impact reviews for that same research so that we know it's something the patient wants to see and it's the best research. Those two scores are calculated and we're able to uh, fund that research each year. We have such a treat for you today. I am so honored to introduce Beth Fairchild, a breast cancer thriver. And Beth is going to share her personal story with us. A lot of times during the month of October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we don't actually hear the stories of women who are living with metastatic breast cancer. And I think that everyone who is listening to this, you're going to learn something. And I think it's going to change the way you view breast cancer in the month of October. And so, Beth, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Tell us your story. Share with us how old you were when you heard the words, I had breast cancer, and how you got to be the thriver that you are today. Sure. I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer when I was 34 years old. I was married. I'm a tattoo artist. My husband and I had five tattoo shops that we ran I was the mom of a 14-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. I was a foster parent and was about to adopt another child who was also 14. I was in the gym five days a week, never drank, never smoked, ate a clean and healthy diet. And I started to feel this extreme fatigue and abdominal bloat. And this went on for a couple of months before my doctors finally ordered some scans and tests for me. And they found that my ovaries were growing. And so she sent me to a gynecologist who did an MRI. And I'll never forget the day I went in to get the results. And he said, yes, your ovaries are very large, but I'm more concerned about the modeled appearance of the bone. And I'm going to need you to see an oncologist. And that was the first time that cancer was on my radar. I went in to see an oncologist who said, you know, this could be really from anything. You're an athlete, you're a runner, your bones could look like this for a number of reasons. So let's take care of your ovary situation and then we'll figure it out. So he sent me to a gynecological oncologist who could do the surgery in a very specific way, should it be cancer that they were seeing. And thankfully that was the right move. I went in just a few days later for my surgery They cut me from my belly button to my pubis, opened my entire pelvic cavity, and my entire pelvis was fused together with cancer. At the time, she was thinking that it was a gynecological cancer, but a couple of days later, the pathology came back that it was indeed breast cancer. So as I lie in the hospital, I was getting blood transfusions. It was a very rough surgery. And a PA came around to deliver the news that the the cells came back as breast cancer cells, that it meant I had stage four breast cancer, and that while there were some treatments available, there was no cure, and that I would live with this until I died from cancer. So you're, you were 34, your daughter, your daughter was, was 14, 14 years old, 
and out of the blue, one day you're fine, and then the next day you hear you have metastatic breast cancer. I can't even imagine how you felt in that moment. And what did you do? What does someone do when they hear those words? And I, I just, I can't even imagine. So share with us kind of what that felt like and what you did. It's kind of how they show it in the movies, you know, <laughs> uh, all of the sound and air yeah. left the room. I had tunnel vision. I couldn't hear anything that she said after that my mom and my husband and my godmother were there in the same room and i kind of went into into mommy mode with them i was comforting them Mm -hmm. um, instead of worrying about how i was feeling i tried to be really strong i tried not to cry i imagine your whole entire life changed in that one instance everything It was flipped upside down because everything that you think that life is about changes in an instant. Your perspective shifts immediately and all the things that you thought were important before are no longer in the forefront of your thoughts. And then it's just about time and what are you going to do with it and who are you going to spend it with and who are you going to love and you want to say all of the things that you need to say. And it was very isolating at the same time because even though my family was supportive, they didn't understand what it was like to hear those words. And it was hard to connect with them on that level. Did you have a family history of breast cancer or did it just come out of the blue, literally? I do have a family history of breast cancer. My mom had breast cancer early stage. Her mother had an early stage cancer in her 70s, which, you know, isn't all that uncommon. My dad had been adopted and we found out that his mother had died of metastatic cancer at 33 years old. However, I still have tested negative for all of the genetic markers that are known. So beyond BRCA1 and 2, there's 160 plus markers that they test for and I've tested negative for all of them. So it's very frightening to know that there's just something that we don't know about yet. Yeah, I I think you're so right. I'm a little lightheaded today, and I just want to share that with everybody. And so (laughs) when you were describing the physical transformation that your body was undergoing as your doctor was telling you that you had cancer, I started to break out into a cold sweat. And I really don't think about that particular day that much anymore. I try not to because it's such a hard thing to physically relive. Sorry to interrupt you. Beth doesn't actually know your story. Um, Oh, gosh. Because we were talking earlier. So, Beth, just to catch you up, of course, I think a lot of our listeners do know. But if you're new to the podcast, Garth has been diagnosed with cancer seven times. And you're currently living with stage four kidney cancer. Metastatic kidney cancer, yeah. The reason why I even wanted to kind of step back to this part of my life is a couple of years after that, Lisa, my wife, she and I were trying to come up with a show that we needed to watch together, right? We, We like to spend a little bit of time together watching a show. We pick one show and watch the heck out of it. And I genuinely didn't know the storyline of Breaking Bad. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) And so we sat down and we queued up the first episode and I knew immediately what was happening. 
based on what they were showing on the screen. And I turned to Lisa and I said, I don't, I, I, I can't watch this. I, I don't even know if the rest of the show is fantastic or not, but I can't get through this 10 minutes of, of Walter being told that he has cancer because I'm starting to feel that same way, that clammy skin and I'm lightheaded and I'm getting tunnel vision and the doctors around me are all sounding like the peanuts parents, wah, 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 wah. And I was done. And yeah, I, um, I had a similar experience watching that. Also, I had never seen it while it was, while it was on air and I decided I would just binge watch it in the first episode and it's like that with any movie that shows a patient getting that diagnosis, I, I almost have a panic attack because it's so real and the emotions are tangible. When I was first diagnosed, my friends came over and they took my daughter Leanne to see a movie to get her out of the house and get her away from cancer. And they took her to see Guardians of the Galaxy. And the first, oh. the first um, scene is a woman who's bald dying of cancer in a hospital. Oh my gosh. They called me and said, Oh my God, we're so sorry. We had no idea, but it's almost, you know, once you're aware of it, I think when you don't have cancer, these things go by and you don't even, you don't even think about it. You're so flippant about it. Yeah. But once you have it, you're so hypersensitive and you realize that it's everywhere. Even in gone girl, you know, the backstory was the husband's mom died yeah. of breast cancer. Yeah. It's, it's literally everywhere. So how old are you now, Beth? Because I just turned 40 last oh, month. Congratulations. Thank you. I, I was supposed to amazing. be here. They gave me two years to live, and that was five years ago. So I'm glad you brought that Woo! up. Um, we, love <laughs> Thanks, it. we love it when people kick ass. And it's just really funny that you well, – it's not funny. But the other day, Garth and I were talking, and Garth said to me – and I never know what Garth is going to say to me. And <laughs> I always we start out like, hey, Dara, guess what? We and weren't she... recording. We weren't recording. We had finished the show. And he said to me, Dara, guess what I just found in my garage? And I was like, I have no idea. What did you find in your garage? And he said, I found – my doctor's report, if you will, that I was given and in the report, and you were given this report many, many, many years ago. And in the report, it basically told you, Garth, and I'm going to let you finish. Yeah. So, so here, here's the interesting thing, right? So I normally, I don't know how this happened. I scan all of my after visit reports and I put them into Evernote. That way I- You don't I, need to tell everyone like what a- like No, a, but, but that's <laughs> so that they're always handy, right? And so somehow this one missed it. I'm in the garage. I'm looking at this and I pull this report out and it's, it's a lengthy report. It looks like there's about 10 pages, diagrams, everything. Like he hand drew a picture of my liver. And so for your reference, and it's highlighted, Garth, nice to meet you today with Dr. Avital, right? So nice to meet you. Oh, by the way, you have metastatic disease. And in theory, you have 12 months survival based on what is known about your disease. And that's and, what he wrote in the, in the yeah, report. Yeah. And, and it gets better. Like if I have good response to therapy, it increases my survival rate from 12 to 15 months. Woohoo! So Garth, you were given that report when? October, uh, October, 2000. Oh no. Yeah. October, 2014. 2013. Okay. And then, so Beth, you were told, I'm assuming when you were getting the information that you had two years to live. And so look at you both now. Beth, you just turned 40. Garth, you it's been seven years. So I just want to talk about that. Like, how does it, 
of course, I'm sure it feels amazing. Thank God. I mean, we're so grateful that you both are here and sharing your story. But what does it feel like to be told you have two years to live? Well, I mean, like I said before, you think about all the things that are important to you now versus what was important to you five seconds before they told you you were going to die. And then how does it feel to be six years later? Well, I, you know, in the, in the beginning, I lived life really fast. I wanted to do all of the things that, that I thought that I wanted to do. And, and then I kind of got a little complacent. And honestly, it's, as you said, I have a ton of gratitude for being alive and for being as healthy as I am. But I also have a lot of guilt for all of my friends who have died, who aren't responding to therapies. You know, I'm, I'm an anomaly to be I don't say I'm disease free, but we are monitoring my cancer and it's just not doing anything. And so I have children who have now, you know, one turned 20, one's turning 20 on Sunday. And I have friends who have little children who are not even going to remember their mommy's faces or the sound of her voice because they're dying of cancer. So as grateful as I am for the life that I have, there's a ton of guilt because I don't understand why I'm here and my friends are not. I do struggle, you know, with, you know, what is it about my body and my cancer that's that responds to therapy when other people don't? It's a balance, right? It's an ebb and flow, kind of a yin and yang of all of these really positive, good, uplifting feelings, and then some not so great feelings sometimes. And Garth, I think you feel that as well. I think you feel guilty sometimes. When I really sit down and think about it, when I allow my brain to kind of dwell on my health, then I look, and I said this earlier before we started recording, I don't want other kidney cancer patients to necessarily look at me as an example of what they can expect because I respond really, really well to treatments. Most of the people who have taken the treatments, the two courses of treatments that I've taken, they don't respond. The best response is 30%. And my first treatment, the best response was around 10%. And there's one treatment that I really want because it actually cures kidney cancer, but it only has a success rate of 5%. And I'm thinking, well, but for Garth, that could be like a 50% chance. (laughs) And I even feel guilty when I talk or meet with other people who have cancer because I have been able to manage my side effects pretty okay. I have been able to, to live a mostly normal life. I I go to work every day. I'm able to participate in family activities. I'm incredibly fatigued. I'm really worn out by the end of the day, but I still get to, you know, get to the end of the day. Beth, do you think about this every day? Do you wake up and do you say, oh yeah, I'm dealing with this? Or have you learned to kind of maybe put it, I don't know. I think there are days that I definitely don't think about having cancer. I have to take medicines every day. And so that's a reminder. I have physical limitations. You know, I'm 40 years old, but I've been postmenopausal since I was 34. I have, you know, weakness, muscle atrophy, brain fog, chemo brain, just this overarching fatigue that won't go away no matter how long I sleep. My cancer is in every single bone in my body. So I have constant muscle pain, uh, peripheral neuropathy from chemotherapy. 
So even when life is really good and I'm really happy, when I feel okay physically, mentally, emotionally, it's still kind of just in my peripheral, even when I have to open that pill bottle and take that pill every day. And there's just no escaping it. And I think that we call it in the in the breast cancer community, we call it cancer fatigue, right? And it's not just me. Like everyone in my circle is tired of me having cancer. They're tired of talking about it. They're tired of me talking about it. They're tired of me not feeling well. They're tired of doctor's appointments and scans. And, you know, in the beginning, everyone wanted to be around me and help me. And now it's like, oh, you're still here. Oh, you still have cancer. And, you know, as tired as they are of hearing about it and dealing with it, I am so tired of living it. And I'll never forget, I was probably two, three years out, and I had a woman come up to me. She was 10 years out from diagnosis, and she said, Beth, I'm just so tired. I'm doing well, but I'm just so tired of it all, and I don't know what to do. And I could not wrap my head around that, but here I am five years later, and I'm tired of dealing with it and thinking about it. And I feel like I'm probably one of the more positive people. I'm not a Debbie Downer. I'm out living life. But it's always there, and I'm just tired. I want to go back to just not having cancer and being the person that I was before. Because even though I'm well as I can be with cancer, there's this collateral damage. And I, you know, as I said, it's just a constant reminder that I'm I'm a sick person. I think you can relate a lot to that, Garth, because there are a lot of days that we talk, and I can just tell you're tired of it all. And yeah. you're so and you're so grateful and blah blah blah. But just like Beth said, it's a burden that you both carry every single day. And it's you know, that's what I want people who are listening to this podcast to realize that if you are out right now and you're healthy, do not take that for granted. I mean, we don't think about these types of things unless we have a reason to think about it, but if you have your health and your family is healthy, you have everything and don't take it for granted because there are people that are getting up every day and I mean, they are true warriors and thrivers, but their days are hard and they carry a burden that the rest of us, we don't know what that feels like. So just the, what you can do is not take your life for granted. I always tell people that health is the great equalizer, right? It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, you know, your health is the most valuable thing that you have. And I think in this country, we are so afraid of talking about death and dying. You know, that that's the thing about October is it's celebratory for the survivors, the people who, you know, quote unquote, beat cancer. And that's the thing is that the people who are really at risk are the ones who are most neglected when they talk about campaigns. And that's not just breast cancer, but all cancer, you know, 90% of cancer deaths are due to metastatic disease. And we're the ones who just aren't talked about, but it's because we need to market the celebratory, the people who survive, the people who beat it. And we're so afraid to talk about the death and dying. And I think that we should address it and we should talk about it. You know, I talk about my own funeral and and my end of life, like someone talks about getting a cup of coffee because that's what my life is like. 
And um, I think everyone should be comfortable talking about it because it's the end for all of us. You know, no one's going to get out of this world mm. alive. And I think we sh should all be more comfortable talking about it. And, and if it were like that, maybe October and all other cancer campaigns would be more impactful because we could talk about the realities. Are you afraid of the future? I'm afraid of being sick. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of what this is going to bring. I'm afraid of being sick, being in pain, of dying emaciated in a bed. I don't want that. I, I If I could just go to sleep and never wake up again, I would be at peace with that. But the only thing that, that makes me afraid is being sick. But I don't think that that's in my immediate future and it's something that you know that I'm able to kind of push out of my mind I don't want to think about it until I get there but no I you know I think that in my advocacy work I'm going to keep pushing I'm going to keep striving for more I'm going to keep trying to help other people share their stories and you know I think that's what the future has in store for me right now what do you want to tell people who are listening right now who know that it's October and know that it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but you might be the very first thriver that they've ever heard the personal story. What do you want to leave them with? You know, no one, no one has ever died from a lump in their breast. And not to diminish anything that an early stage breast cancer patient will experience, but as long as that tumor stays local to your breast, you are not at risk of dying from that cancer. It's not until it metastasizes and grows in other places is it going to kill anyone. And I think the big misconception is that people beat cancer or are cancer free, and that's simply not true. Metastatic cancer means that that cancer never left your body. That sleepy cell just hung out until it decided to grow somewhere else. And once that happens, you, you are you are in a place where we can't cure you. Science isn't there yet. And while we have some treatments that can extend the lives, the median survival of 18 to 36 months simply isn't enough. So I would like everyone to know that we need to fund top-down research. So if we can, through science, save people like Garth and myself, then no one has to fear a metastatic diagnosis or an, even an early-stage diagnosis because they'll have the medicines needed to keep them going with a decent quality of life for a normal lifespan, much like we've done with HIV and AIDS and diabetes. And I think if there's more awareness of how science works and how cancer works, then people will know where to focus their energy for advocacy and their money when they want to fund research. I know that Metaviver gives and has funded $7.4 million to metastatic research. But where are we in terms of finding that cure? Are we close? Is it something that I think both of you know more than more than I know, definitely. Like, how close is it? We're not even inching towards the finish line, especially with breast cancer. 
So there's over 18 different types and subtypes of breast cancer. So to talk about a cure would mean we would need over 18 different cures because they're all different diseases. I think the big misconception, the big misconception is that cancer is cancer is cancer. And that's just not true. Even someone with the exact kind of cancer that I have, their DNA is going to make that cancer act differently in their body. And because of that, there's just no way that we are anywhere near being curative with breast cancer. Our best hope is that we have treatments that will keep us going for each individual person. The more targeted therapies like we have now that are adding to that median survival. You know, in the 80s, the median survival was six months. And here we are at three years. And so we've actually seen progress and the science is advancing quickly, but I think we are miles away, galaxies away from breast cancer being curative. They do talk about how breast cancer deaths are on the decline or that breast cancer in the early stage is curative. However, what they don't tell you is that those statistics are based on five years of tracking. So if you're diagnosed with an early stage breast cancer and you live five years, then you are considered cured. But if you live five years and die at five years in one day, you're not tracked. You're still considered and counted into that cure. They don't, they don't count after five years. And so the numbers that they talk about are wildly skewed. And the statistics that we have for the metastatic patient are just made up. I mean, of course, mathematicians do their best to estimate, but we are not tracked as metastatic patients. So we simply don't know. And it's frustrating when we try to talk to folks about how many people are living with meds or how many people are dying from breast cancer, because the truth is we really don't know those numbers. And that's a big problem in the world of advocacy. But when you're talking about a cure, I simply don't think we're anywhere near a cure for breast cancer, because as I said, there's so many different types of cancer. It would be nearly impossible to be curative. I think there's some really, you know, we are on the cusp and I don't know how long it's going to take us to get over that next step. I had a conversation with my oncology team a couple of months ago. Back when I was originally diagnosed with cancer, I had my DNA tested and sequenced. And so I brought that report in because it's not officially part of my medical report. And it was a new oncology team and I wanted them to have a copy. The guy who was reviewing it kind of got this smirk on his face and he looked at me and he said, yeah, I see that they recommended taking pizabinib to treat this type of cancer. That was the first treatment that I took for four and a half years. And I knew where he was going with this. And he said, yeah, you know, I noticed that they didn't recommend nivolumab. And we both smiled because we knew. And he's like, yeah, because it didn't exist back then. So just in this short time of cancer treatment, there's this new treatment that not only works for kidney cancer, but a, a number of other cancers that it's helping our immune system learn how to target the proteins at, that are on cancer cells so that it can recognize those cells as bad cells for your body. And I can only hope that we continue making progress in this type of research because that's the type of treatment that will be able to work more broadly, not just with one particular type of cancer or one particular type of cell mutations, 
a, a much broader spectrum of treatment. And I have hope for that. I firmly believe that my daughter's generation will not die from cancer. Yeah. The, all three of us, it's interesting. We all have daughters who are who are turning 20. And from your mouth to God's ears, Garth, because I would love to see our daughters and our grandchildren not have to hear the words, you have cancer. Beth, thank you so much for being here today. It was incredibly meaningful to us. If there's anything that Garth and I can do to support your work, please let us know. It is an honor to speak with you and we wish you continued health and much love. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Be well, Garth. Have a great day. You guys too. So this episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Crushed Cancer online course, a 10 module online program that you can watch from your home. It's little videos with worksheets that go along with each module. It is regularly $197, but with your coupon code THRIVE, you will receive 50% off, and that means you will get the whole course for $99. The 10 modules talk about things such as you didn't ask for cancer, but now we have to deal with it, to thinking about yourself as a survivor, establishing a mantra, physical and emotional changes, fear versus faith, creating a daily self-care practice, and so many more things. You can check it out by going to crazyperfectlife.com and clicking on the Crush Cancer online course. Sonia, thank you so much for introducing us to Beth. That was an incredibly meaningful conversation. I personally feel like I know a lot about this and I learned a lot. So I know our listeners probably were very moved by that. Um, Garth, do you have a napkin note for us today? You know, just to refresh our guests in case they don't know, I've been writing notes and sticking them in my daughter's lounge ever since she was in kindergarten. She's turning 20 this month. So as you can imagine, I've been writing a lot of notes. Sometime shortly after my cancer diagnosis, I started taking pictures of the notes as a kind of a memorial of this thing that we had built up between between the two of us. And I'll be honest, I, I've had a really hard time kind of like focusing on this particular episode. It's brought back a lot of feelings and memories that I don't like to talk about or like to have around uh, because that being diagnosed with cancer is an incredibly challenging uh, situation. And so the note that I have is one that I wrote to her way back in the beginning because I wanted her to understand my viewpoint, how I was going to live with a cancer diagnosis. And the note simply says, remember that guy who quit? Neither does anyone else. Mm. Well, Garth, you certainly don't quit. You inspire us, as does Beth, and as does this organization, Metaviver. Again, all the links are going to be in the show notes. And 100% of your donations goes directly to research. And that's why we wanted to highlight this organization. Sonia, we are so thankful for you taking the time to be with us today. We know that you are so busy. Um, we like to ask our guests if they have a thriving tip, which is just a little nugget of goodness that um, we like to leave our listeners with. Is there a particular thriving tip that 
you feel maybe you've learned from the beautiful thrivers that you come in contact with every day that you could share with us because you actually, you get to know the people that are experiencing metastatic breast cancer and you talk to them and you, and you're with them every day. Is there something that you could share with us? Absolutely. Don't ever underestimate the power of your own personal message. Mm, That's so beautiful. What a privilege for Garth and I today to speak with you and to support your organization and to get to talk to Beth. Thank you, Sonia, so much for being here. Oh, it has really been our pleasure. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thrive is created with the hope that we help you develop motivation and inspiration to make your life remarkable. You can find out more about me at napkinnotesdad.com. I invite you to get my free audio download, Reclaim Your Life at crazyperfectlife.com with tips and tools to help you feel your best. It would mean so much to us if you shared this with your friends and family and left us a review on iTunes. Remember, you deserve to thrive. Thrive Podcast is copyrighted by Dara and Garth.